Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I don't know about you, but for some reason I'm feeling kind of restless today. I guess it uh, may be because so many of my friends are getting ready for Burning Man right now. And uh, I'm uh, maybe just picking up on their hectic uh, getting ready for the playa vibe. I spoke with Chris Pezza the other day, and he tells me that the first wave of the brave and hardy souls that will be building Camp Soft Landing will be leaving for the playa in just a day or so. And as you know, this is the camp that will be hosting this year's Palenque Norte Lectures. So, if you go to palenquenorte.com, you can uh, check out the really great speaker schedule that uh, Pez and Annie Oak and their team have put together. It's a truly wonderful lineup of over 40 speakers and includes more than a dozen women speakers this year. So, uh, if you're going to be at the burn, be sure to stop by their camp and introduce yourself. Uh, you're going to find them this year at 915 and B, which uh, is about as good a location as you're going to find on the playa. So uh, I really wish that I could be there myself, but I'll most certainly be with you all in spirit. And uh, one of the reasons that I'm in a podcasting mood today is that there are some fellow saloners that I'd like to give a shout out to, like uh, Naomi and Joe, who just sent me a postcard from Paris where they're spending their honeymoon. And uh, since I just finished reading Edward Rutherford's brilliant historical novel, which is titled Paris, I now have a much better idea of the history of that interesting city, and uh, I'm thinking of you two guys there right now. Also, I want to mention that we received donations during the past 10 days from Brian, Michael, Sean, Jeffrey, Stephen, Thomas, and uh, once again from our friends at Stabila. Uh, you have uh, all put us well on our way toward covering this month's expenses once again, so I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. And uh, so now let's get back to listening to some more of the Terrence McKenna workshop that I began a few days ago. And I think that today's talk is a really good example of what our longtime salon patron John Jay says about Terrence. And that is that we are attracted to his talks maybe not so much because he was such a big proponent of psychedelics, but because, uh, well, in essence, he was one of the last great liberal thinkers of the 20th century. And uh, by the way, John, uh, your year and one day ended on the day after my birthday this year, which means that it began on the day of my 70th birthday. Interesting coincidence, don't you think? Now, although at times I've uh, edited out a retelling of the stone date theory, this time I've left it in for a couple of reasons. First of all, since this recording was made in 1988, this is uh, possibly one of his earliest tellings of the story, and so it seems a little more detailed and fresh. But the main reason uh, I've left it in this time is the way that he led up to the telling of it by putting it in a larger context of the evolution of the planet as well. And uh, hopefully you'll be getting something new out of this in its larger context. But before Terence gets to the uh, psychedelic apes, among other interesting topics he covers is his take on the drug culture of the 1960s and how the lack of a shamanism model for LSD caused some unforeseen consequences and uh, why what he calls the first psychedelic revolution got into trouble. 
It's an interesting look into that era from a perspective that I hadn't thought of myself, and uh, my guess is that you're going to gain something new from these insights as well. So, uh, why wait? Let's get on with the show and join the Bard McKenna on one fine day in 1988. What I sort of want to talk about this morning, and I can be led away from it if you have uh, other considerations, is uh, I want to... It's pretty clear from how this group is relating and coming on that everybody has come to some uh, resolution about this in their own lives. What's become more and more interesting to me as I've talked to more people and uh, also as you, if you stay in a field like this, you eventually get to meet everybody. You get to meet Albert Hoffman and Sasha Shulgin and, and uh, Leary and Lily and all these people, and you begin to have a, a view of how all these people viewed it. So what I wanted to talk about this morning and lead it toward your concern with the alien intelligence is I wanted to talk about the effect that psychedelics are having and I believe will have on society in general, and at deeper levels simply than drug laws and <laughs> government campaigns of abstinence, but more on the level of how it's impacting in philosophy and, and science and the social sciences. Because I think we are winning. The psychedelic viewpoint is becoming more and more legitimate. It isn't, but psychedelic drugs are not. That's the odd paradox of it. And uh, this has a lot to do with the history of science over the past hundred years. Uh, what we call modern science, or which you could almost call super science, not the notebook jottings of naturalists and the collated accounts of travelers, but big science, where millions, hundreds of millions of dollars are spent on instruments and coordinated teams of people attack problems. This style of science that has grown up in the 20th century has had a very interesting consequence, which because it is spread out over more than a generation, we all have grown up with it and haven't really uh, realized what an unusual situation we are living in. We are living in a state of constant scientific revolution. There is not a single area that you can name that is now seen as it was seen, let's pick a number, a hundred years ago. Nothing is left of the worldview of one hundred years ago. One hundred years ago, atoms were billiard balls, the basic building block of the universe, indivisible. One uh, hundred uh, years ago, the position of biology was that Darwinian mechanics had just been enunciated in the 1850s and was making its way against an orthodoxy which held that the earth had been created in 4004 BC. 100, less than 100 years ago, 
when the cave paintings at Lascaux and Altamira in southern France and Spain were first discovered, and experts came from Paris to view them, after looking the caves over, the experts announced that these paintings were obviously done by soldiers in the army of Napoleon who had overwintered there in 1816 and 17. Continental drift was unknown. The fact that the continent of Africa had an edge which fit exactly against the continent of South America was uh, mentioned in textbooks as an example of God's sense of humor. It was not seen to signal anything. I can't think of an area in science where we have retained the vision that we had then. The earth was thought to be ultimately stable, pretty much as it had been on the day of creation, even by the British geologists who were reacting against uh, uh, the story of biblical creation. But there's one area where surprisingly little has happened, and it is, strangely enough, uh, the area of the human mind. Strides were made in the early part of the 20th century by describing the unconscious. But it's important to remember that some of the hottest therapies that pass through a place like Esalen, which would be things like uh, uh, hypnotherapy, mesmerism. Mesmerism had its great heyday in the 1890s of the last century. Uh, Colonic therapy brought to a peak in Germany in the 1870s. Um, uh, Reflexology, a 19th century theory. Homeopathy, a theory developed in the late 19th, early 20th century. So we've not had in place really new models of the mind. The body, because of, of Wilhelm Reich and the many, many schools that he spawned either as his progeny or in reaction to his thought, have given us new handles on the relationship of psychology to the body. But in the area of the mind, it's been pretty much left alone. Well, now, to go back to the previous example of these other areas where scientific revolutions were made, they were true revolutions. They were not fine-tunings or little additions of details, but complete overthrow of old paradigms and the establishment of new ones. The earth went from being a solid body with continents pretty much in the same places since creation to a complex system of convection flows where continents are brought together and broken apart. Uh, Man, instead of being seen as the highest product of creation, a descent slightly beneath the angels, is instead seen as a primate, a a specialized monkey of a certain sort. The hard atoms, the indivisible atoms of 19th century physics give way to fields, first of all, fields which are characterized by action at a distance, which had always been excluded uh, uh, previously. I mean, reason dictated that action at a distance was a kind of superstition. Then James Clerk Maxwell demonstrated that these fields uh, 
really exist. So in each of these areas, a total revolution took place. Now, the reason that uh, psychology was immune to this, I think, was because we did not have the tools to advance it. They came to us out of ethnography and anthropology, out of the work of Wasson and Hoffman and earlier Havelock Ellis and uh, Weir Mitchell, Henri Michaud, all the people who worked with psychedelics. At first it was worked with by artists, by literary people, by people who were interested in expanding their own sensation. But slowly it came to be realized that it was an insight into the mind, not into the nature of it so much, which I think still remains a mystery, but simply into its size, that the mind is a far bigger domain than we ever imagined. We have somehow the idea that, uh, that uh, the mind is in the head, it's made by the brain, and therefore it must be a smaller uh, and less inclusive domain than the domain in which it is embedded. But I, I brought along an example here. This is a box, and this box has in it a box that is exactly the same size as it is. This demonstrates how even in three-dimensional reality, uh, expectation can be confounded. This, which is inside the box, is itself a box, indistinguishable from this one. And then that one goes in there like that and can be closed into this. Now that's what we're here to talk about. It's <laughs> just how to do that. How to take a world with a world in it and put it into the world in it and put the world in it outside of it. Because what we're talking about and what history is, I think, is an effort to exteriorize the soul and interiorize the body to make the, uh, the fields of the Lord that we all sense inside us meadows that we can actually throw our clothes off and wander into. I think really what unites psychedelic people is the faith in the power of the imagination. And science, when it examines the psychedelics as it will and must, is going to discover a revolution, I believe, that will put all the previous revolutions in perspective and will show that they were merely anticipations of finding out this final unimaginable fact about nature. This uh, weekend is called uh, In the Light of Nature, Nature, whenever you scratch its surface, has aspects that are unanticipated. So when they looked at the shape of the continents, they discovered continental drift. When Wallace and Darwin looked at the distribution of butterflies over Indonesian islands, 
They suddenly had a vision of the origin of species and how that worked. Uh, the psychedelics are this immense tool for the inspection of our own nature. And when we scratch it, when we bring that tool to apply, we are not going to recognize ourselves. Uh, we talked a little bit last night about LSD. A kind of funny thing about LSD was that it was the right drug for the right time in that it fulfilled the psychological theories of the world into which it came. Now, this may have something to do with the fact that it was psychologists who were keen to promote it. We'll never know. The thing seems to be inextricably wedded together. But LSD made possible the recovery of traumatic material, uh, lucid communication, uh, revisioning of self-image, and the energy to break out of habit patterns, and this sort of thing. What was absent in LSD was any reference back into the natural world. The entire drug phenomenon of the 1960s happened without the concept of shamanism to help it along. I mean, maybe Gary Snyder said something about it once in a seminar, but it was not heard by most people because what was being stressed about LSD was its utter newness. How this was... And I remember people saying that it had been created to save us from the brink of atomic catastrophe. It had come into the world at the exact proper time to be there when we needed it. There was not a sense of history you see. There was not a sense of 20, 30, 50,000 years of involvement with the psychedelic state. We, a society, a dominant culture, always assumes that it is the most sophisticated of a long line of precursors. But as a matter of fact, the childishness and the sort of... Um, fragile uninformedness that the hip people saw in the straight people in the 60s was a phenomenon that everyone shared. Everyone was naive. Everyone was more simplistic than they should have been. And that's why I think the, the first psychedelic revolution got into trouble because there was no sense of history there was no sense of, have societies ever integrated something like this? And what then did they become? What kind of societies can live in the light of the psychedelic experience? There was no real discussion of that. Now, because this dimension of earth crisis has been added in the intervening years, this was another... Uh, aspect that was missing from the hippie thing to some degree. Yes? No? I'm sorry, I don't think it was, because I recall <coughs> the tremendous involvement with the hippies in the 60s at Millbrook, for instance. There was a lot of attention paid to organic growing of food and 
uh, you know, not, not abusing the fruits of this earth. There was tremendous involvement, and it came out of the psychedelic, of the LSD consciousness. It was the beginning of the Back to the Earth, what they used Absolutely, to call the Back to the Earth yes, movement. But don't you agree, Nina, that if you were to walk down Hate Street on a hot day in August of 1967, ecological sensitivity would not be highly visible on the surface? Timothy Leary said, get out of the city. Everybody yes. should start their own, you know, they, they grow their own food, and uh, that that consciousness was very Well, that, much, that very was really the beginning of it, the, that it was the end of the summer of love when they realized that they'd just been mediated to death and political things, they'd been overrun. Then they moved into the countryside. Um communal living in the country, which is tribalism, which McLuhan was talking about in the 60s, not from the point of drugs, but electronics. But I think that that was the beginning of the permission for Earth Day, ecological sensitivity. Now the great philosopher of the psychedelic community, to my mind, is Rupert Sheldrake. And Rupert is a botanist, a natural scientist, a man in the tradition of Darwin and Wallace. We're trying to say, and, and what is being realized, I think, is that the psychedelics have always been exerting a, a, a pressure on human beings that we, from about, oh, I don't know, 1600 something like that, pick a date, from 1600 to 1960, lost sight of that because we lived entirely in an industrial, mechanistic, materialistic, reductionist, capitalist kind of society. But all other societies have had some awareness, at least of nature, if not of psychedelics, of nature forming the aesthetic and uh, now we're returning to this. There is, uh, I think, an awareness that understanding man's place in nature is going to require psychedelic uh, integration of the psychedelic experience. When we go into nature, and this gets to your question, when we look hard at these tryptamine psychedelics and the plants they come from and the content of the information and the fact that there seems to be, it seems to be very hard for people to bring it across, even having had 10 or 15,000 years to do so, well then the awareness begins to grow that there is a presence on this planet that we had previously missed that we have been so busy about the anthill business of building human culture that we have paid lip service to the power of nature, to Gaia, to the goddess. But I don't think anybody has realized how real it is. Uh, if you wanted to talk about Gaia, most people would place you in the, in the category of spiritual or religious. But I think talking about Gaia belongs in the category uh, natural science and natural history. Gaia is, 
a regulating set of grids that are laid over this planet that keep it going in the right direction, that stabilize certain kinds of processes and damp others. And the expression of Gaia outside of culture is uh, the, the botanical world, the world of plants. I mean, man, woman, animal, plants. The plants were the first ones to have a feminine approach, if you want to put it that way. I mean, they invented the feminine approach before there was even femininity, if you want to put it that way. In other words, nurturing, staying in one place, cooperation, uh, integration, and regulation rather than dominance, conquest, mobility, these sorts of things, which then are the animal solution to the same problem. And an orthodox evolutionary biologist tends to sneer at plants because we all have the built-in assumption that the brain is in the mind. I mean, that the mind is in the brain, and that if you don't have a brain, you don't have a mind. Or if you do have a mind, it's so low-grade that it's just kind of a, a shimmer of perceptual awareness. If you examine this proposition that the mind is in the brain, it doesn't hold water at all. You know, all the miles and miles of electroencephalographic tracings that have been done, nobody has ever correlated a thought with an electrical discharge in the brain. The closest they've gotten is uh, to, to correlate a kind of state of focused awareness with a, a blip in the electrical activity of the brain. When you're told, prepare yourself for a question, then there is a measurable bit of activity in the brain as though you reorient, I'm about to get a question. You mean to why this correlation hasn't been? Yes, true, but it's, you know, they've had 50 years to make good on their promise that they were going to show us thought in the brain. Sherrington and those people uh, what was the famous uh, Spanish neurophysiologist, Ramon de Cajal and Sherrington and those people, announced all of this in the early 1920s. Since then, we've had supercomputers, super imaging systems, microprobes, uh, vast advances in the technologies they said they needed in order to make this point. They have not made good. It's interesting, there are a couple of areas. Uh, in 1952, DNA, the structure of DNA was elicited. Well, the scientific literature was full of predictions of the cure of all diseases within 15 years, certainly the elimination of all uh, genetic defects, a full understanding of what life is. Well, then, as they began to elucidate the mechanisms of DNA, they turned out to be simply that, 
mechanisms no more interesting than a water faucet or uh, a torsion belt or a weighted governor. The life that molecular biology seems to be able to describe is a life of uh, chains and pulleys, falling weights and tightening chains. Uh, there has not been a single step toward elucidating what it actually is. Its mechanisms are better understood, but not what it is. To the mind even more so. To the point now where the people in the field to each other will admit that there's a problem. There's a crisis. This past week there was a conference here called the Holonomics Conference. Uh, Carl Prebrahm's theory of brain functioning, which is certainly state-of-the-art and out there, but it just recently had to be restructured and renamed, changed from the holographic theory to the holonomic theory because the experimental data was not supporting the model that they had. This happens over and over again. So I think we're, very, we're too patient with science. Nobody should be allowed more than 50 years to get their act together. If somebody claims they... I mean, think about it. We, we, think of the, um, we think of the 20th century as the most rapidly evolving uh, uh, century that there has ever been. A, couple, a few years ago, Kat and I took the children to Mexico to wander around looking at the Mayan ruins. We were in San Cristobal de las Casas, which some of you may know. It's high up in the mountains of Chiapas. And uh, there's an immense cathedral there. It was built in 1511. Built in 1511? Columbus discovered America in 1492. So that's 92... 1502, 1512, 19 years after Columbus had discovered America in, in a world relying on galleons and, and horse flesh, the complete conquest of a culture was totally fit accompli and buildings 600 feet long with 300 foot ceilings were being put up all over Mexico. We went to the moon 69, 79, 19 years ago. Today, we couldn't put a lawn chair on the moon. You would think that by now we would have buildings 600 feet long with 300 foot ceilings, have the Indians all working for us and be looting the place of minerals. Uh, so, so uh, see, there is... Uh, we tolerate too much foot dragging, and these scientists have been pontificating. A real sore point with me is the claims of quantum physics. I mean, my God, how, how many conferences are there going to be on the connection between quantum physics and consciousness before somebody comes up with something better than a rap? And the new position of the particle physics community is... Just give us six and a half billion dollars and a machine 19 kilometers in diameter and we will show you something. Well, but five years ago we gave you four billion dollars and you built the machine four and a half kilometers in diameter and what you concluded out of that was you need a bigger one. <laughs> 
And we're living in a world where people are starving, where people are dying of AIDS. I mean, I'm not saying you have to just give the money away to the poor. Certainly nothing as radical as that. But uh, if, if you want a scientific uh, frontier that has positive feedback into the human experience, then let's take the, the six and a half billion dollars and have a full assault on the mechanism of viruses in the human cell so that we come out of it with an AIDS cure, of course, but we come out of it also with a much deeper understanding of the mechanics of life. I think it's time to begin to call in the chips on these various disciplines that have been promising great things to us for the past uh, 30 years. Where would psychedelic research be if it had been going on at full funding since 1960 and uh, hundreds of thousands of people well and healthy had taken it and the uh, plants of the world had been fully surveyed the cultures of the world, databases have been built of their folklore and this sort of thing. So we, and even though I think we represent a fairly deconditioned subgroup, are still in thrall to these, the promises of uh, a science that, whose promises begin to sound more and more hollow. Part of what being involved in the psychedelic experience is, is reclaiming your own experience. We, we expect Carl Sagan to explain it to us, or the evening news, and we don't realize all these people are just like we are. All of these people are utterly, utterly, utterly ordinary, totally ordinary. I can't impress upon you enough how ordinary everyone is. And, and we drift into the assumption, you know, that great men and women are at the helm and that deep thinkers are publishing all of uh, these books. And it's just not so. It's a groping. It's a feeling toward it. And any one of us is uh, competent. This whole cult of professionalism and elites is just a shell game. The thing to do is reclaim direct experience and then insist for other people that that be dealt with. Uh, I've tried to do that by talking about the part of the psychedelic experience which nobody seemed to want to talk about, which is, it seems to me that it's not an exploration of our psychology, of our conscious or unconscious mind. It's a place. There's real estate in there. It is as profound a dimension as the new world was for Columbus. We are going to live in the world that the psychedelic experience is revealing to us because we primarily define ourselves culturally through language. And the psychedelic experience is, I think, primarily will be found to be a revisioning of language. Literally, castles in the air await us in our global future. We are going to... Um, we are journeying deeper and deeper into the imagination. This, uh, this conference that just finished this past week was called Living in the Imagination. 
And its focus was not strictly or, or at all particularly psychedelic. It was artists, writers, film people, performers talking about living in the imagination. I think you could almost describe psychedelics as enzymes for the activity of the imagination. And the imagination is a sense, like seeing, feeling, touching. It is more than simply an, a, an anticipation of the future. It's an anticipation of those things which lie outside the forward thrust of the momentum of probability. The possession of the imagination is what characterizes us and distinguishes us from other creatures. I mean, you can talk all you want about porpoises and dolphins and all of these things, but, you know, they may have rich interior lives, but there is no trace of epigenetic coding. In other words, they don't write books, paint paintings, build cathedrals, uh, these are the things which we do, which have built up a tremendously rich environment for each succeeding generation, so that we, are, we do not birth our children into the world of nature. We birth our children into the world of culture. And culture is some kind of collective engineering process that up to this point has been largely unconscious, entirely unconscious. I mean, people just thought what they thought and let the chips fall where they may, and every once in a while a Christ or a Mohammed or a Buddha would come along and reshuffle the deck, and then the game would play on. But uh, we are coming to the place, a great, turning place, I would think, a cusp almost in the evolution of human psychology. It's the self-reflection cusp. We are beginning to become sophisticated enough with our language and our awareness to stand outside of ourselves. What is the human enterprise? You know, what is happening on this planet? What the hell is going on here? This planet uh, has supported an endless succession of animal forms. They can be traced back into the gunflit shirts of, uh, of South Africa three and a half billion years. Uh, in the last million years, phenomena never before seen on this planet have begun to emerge, not all of them having to do with the human species. For instance, glaciers. I believe and subscribe to the school in geology which says there were not glaciers a billion years ago or a hundred million years ago. Glaciers are a recent phenomenon having to do with the accumulation of instability in the planetary orbit. Ice moving southward, miles high from the poles on a cycle of 20 to 50,000 years is something entirely unique for the biology of this planet to encounter. That process, which islands and then uh, islands populations of primates and other animals and then recedes so that these intensified islanded genomes then flow back into a general gene pool and then islands them again. This is like kneading the bread 
of evolutionary adaptation. And it's out, and it's in that world of ice moving south and moving north that the human story begins to pick up. Because uh, the human story is a story that everyone who studies the matter believes uh, began in Africa. And uh, it was the forming and the unforming of the glaciers that created the cycle of wetness and dryness in Africa that placed pressure on the evolving primates in the, in the primary rainforests of the African tropics to begin to develop a dry grassland or limited resource adaptation in the background of the arboreal adaptation. Well, then, as the ratios of selective intensity shifted in favor of the dryland situation, uh, the, the uh, previous mutation, which had been there all along but had not been prominent because it was not conferring an adaptive advantage, suddenly came into the fore. And you get binocular vision, bipedalism, pack signaling, all of these things which are the beginning of the repertoire of our uh, heritage. Now, up to this point in that story, almost all evolutionary biologists and primatologists agree. What I've recently been trying to say and hope to write a book about is I think that it was the presence of psychedelic plants in that environment that provided the spark to begin to call forth conscious self-reflection out of this primate species. The case goes something like this. The primates evolved, uh, they abandoned their vegetarian lifestyle as the great forests were reduced to grasslands. They adopted a more omnivorous lifestyle, which you see in most of the higher primates today, and they began to hunt the large ungulate mammals that were uh, simultaneously evolving as the grasslands uh, became a more dominant ecology. In the manure of, uh, of these ungulate mammals, cattle, uh, mushrooms find their idealized environment. Well, if you've ever watched a baboon... Uh, the strategy of baboons for hunting food is they go along and they pick stuff up and they smell and taste and they turn, they're always turning things over looking for uh, bugs. Well, carrion beetles and stuff like that always congregate under cow pies. Isn't it wonderful that the evolution of the grandeur of the human mind uh, begins with uh, what's going on with doodle bugs under cow pies? It keeps your humility. But this, this the, because searching for insect protein, assume, the mushroom is a very conspicuous part of that kind of environment. I mean, a child of three will run to it in the meadow because it's neither fish nor fowl, you know. I mean, it is uh, quite an anomalous and striking object. Psilocybin, it's been shown, increases visual acuity in small doses. 
this is very solid research done by Roland Fisher in the 50s and the 60s, some of the last research done with psychedelics. Uh, he showed that very small amounts of psilocybin increase visual acuity before there is any other effect. You don't feel stoned or anything like that. The way they proved this is they built an apparatus where there were two parallel metal bars and someone unseen by the subject by turning a crank could impart torsion to one of the metal bars so that the two parallel bars would slowly one would twist and they would cease to be parallel. So you get graduate students, the favorite experimental animal of the psychology, and you give them light doses of psilocybin and you sit them down in front of this apparatus and tell them to push the buzzer when the, line, when the two bars are no longer parallel. Very consistently, the people who had been dosed with psilocybin scored higher on this test than the people who had not. Fisher, being f wishing to be facetious, said to me, you see, this is a case where we've experimentally proven that drugs give you a truer picture of reality than being straight. <laughs> and for him it was a joke. See, it was just this cute thing that you say to your academic colleagues. But I was quite touched and struck by... This is true, what this man is saying. This is a simple experiment. It proves that sometimes a drug, is, it's better to be stoned than not stoned, and your life could be depending on it. Because hunting is an activity where visual acuity is 95% of the game, you know. And it doesn't hurt to also have a CNS stimulant that can give you a running burst if you need it. So, since psilocybin provides both of these things, it just, you know, turns you into a real killing machine. <laughs> so... <laughs> and, and Fisher never considered the the impacts of his findings in the, what this would mean in the natural environment. But I wanted to think about it, and it seemed to me that that meant that those primates, including the psilocybin in their food chain, would automatically have a leg up over those that did not. They would be able to move quicker in the hunting situation and more accurately. Well, you have to have studied evolution for 10 minutes to know that that means, then, that these forms are going to be preserved and selected in favor of over those individuals that do not have this in their food. At the same time, it could have made them a little bit more vulnerable. In what way? Well, you eat a bunch of mushrooms. You know, suddenly you're just sitting there watching all these patterns, you know, suddenly you're not, you're more vulnerable predators per se or something, so... Yes, well, that's what I wanted to get to. I don't, I'm not, I don't mean full trips. I mean that in the process of eating bugs and roots and stuff, if they ate these mushrooms without even knowing they were psychoactive, they would have this visual acuity. Now, somebody at some point ate a lot of them, and they discovered that they were no good for hunting or bursts of speed or anything. They just wanted to lie on the ground and, uh, you know, be with it. At that point... I think this becomes a mystery for the first human beings. The cow is the source of food, fuel, 
uh, body covering, milk, and an image of nurturing that's very important because the birthing of the cow, it probably was the birthing of cattle and the observation of cattle probably taught people more about sex than their own sexuality did. You know, I mean, the husbanding of animals is how uh, farm children learn about life. I don't know. This all relates to the theme of the light in nature because there is a great mystery on this planet. We are only one side of the coin of that mystery. Our existence here should be the clue to us that something really weird is going on. I don't, I don't think most planets are like this planet. I can stretch out to the idea that there are many planets with life, but I think the level of complexity, the presence of a historical civilization, which is just going to exist for a geological microsecond, we are very, very close to the people we came out of 50,000 years ago. And yet look at how our, we have changed the world. Who is whispering to us in our dreams? Whose hand is it that we feel guiding our destiny into the future? We're so accustomed to being rational and reductionist, the there ain't nothing really going on here at all school of thought, that we're just deadened to the mysteriousness of our own presence. If we're here, who knows what else could be here in the mountains, jungles, and deserts of this planet. I mean, we have not yet even carried out a complete uh, cataloging of nature. We don't really know whether, what kind of a foundation we're standing on. And then when you take the psychedelics, which come out of the natural world, the message that they are bearing in the broadest uh, sweep is that our historically created symbolic model of reality is almost worthless. I mean, it's okay for dealing bread and trading donkeys, but once you get into anything deeper than that, uh, it's just a story we tell ourselves, a magic charm that we rattle against the darkness. The real nature of our predicament is completely opaque to us, except when we put our mind into the socket of nature, and then we connect up to something so bizarre that we can barely recognize it. Something laying, lying so far outside our previous symbolic structures that we don't know whether it's an alien invasion, the eminence of Christ's immediate return, the rise of Atlantis, or just what it is. It is confounding. That's the main thing about psychedelics. That's why it seems to me it, it divides people. It's for people who like the bizarre, the weird, the unthinkable, the unspeakable, the peculiar, the edge of meaning, beauty at its most baroque and almost, uh, you know, the world of Hieronymus Bosch and Peter Bruegel the Elder and... Uh, and some people don't like that. They like to be reassured. They like closure. They love uh, being ensconced in concentric circles of uh, expectation 
and tradition and solidity, that sort of thing. And they, I think, this just gives them the heebie-jeebies, this kind of stuff. Because we're saying that the intellectual world has an edge, you know? And that if you go over that edge, you will find the unanticipated tremendum. Maybe then it doesn't matter if, it, if cats are teachers, and uh, people are teachers too, how it got there. Um, that's a great question, but I see it more as a way into a doorway somewhere that that's real and mm-hmm. you know that's the point well maybe there's a planetary regulating system and people are <clears throat> simply cells in a larger organism and when it comes time for something to happen which maybe means all life leaves the planet or something then the equivalent of hormones are produced in the environment to initiate this morphogenetic re-scripting of what is going on. And suddenly, animals which were perfectly happy hunting on the velts of Africa begin making art, watching the stars, and uh, moving into history for the purpose of saving the planet. I really like to think that that we are biologically regulated and that history is a biological phenomenon under the control of the environment. It isn't something that is going against the environment. Now, the objection to that is that it looks so bad. It it looks cancerous. But the obvious counter to that is birth. I mean, birth is... There's a lot of blood shed. People make sounds as though, though they were in great pain. They are in great pain. It, it has all the attributes that we associate with the violent termination of the organism. And yet, it is the precise opposite. It is the birthing of the new generation. And it is unavoidable, and it is perfectly natural. Well, as a woman grows pregnant and she loses her um, sylph-like form and becomes heavier and all these things, the changes which go on in pregnancy, may be something like what has happened to the earth over the last 20,000 years. The earth is pregnant with humanity and perhaps much else. And obviously, you just look at the earth and humanity say, these two can't stay together much longer. They're becoming a problem. The mother can't function. The child is in danger. And like the birth situation, where if the child is not eventually birthed, toxemia will set in, then everything goes haywire. Then both parties are in danger and there has to be emergency intervention and so forth. I don't really think we've reached that point, but I think we have come to term. And as you know, concerning birth, transition is the psychedelic compression of it all, where it all comes together, and it seems like it is impossible and overwhelming and is going on forever, and then it ends. 
and then the baby is born and everything is seen to be all right. Well, I think the 20th century, it's not a metaphor that we are birthing the new soul of humanity. It's actually happening, and it's ripping our society and our planet to pieces. But what will come out of it is, uh, you know, the meaning of our destiny, perhaps the meaning of the planetary destiny. And I hope that we are going to be privileged to be midwives of this process, to be there on that great day when it all makes sense. And then you can turn and look back at the process, the wars and revolutions and pogroms and migrations and the whole thing and say, now I understand what all that was about. That's, I think, the real promise of getting with nature through the psychedelics, being in on that process. Because if you're in on that process, anxiety will leave you. You will not define yourself as a victim. You will define yourself as a privileged spectator. Have you thought about this outside and inside But I wonder, Clive, I mean, thinking about the question, is it inside or outside, it seems to me it more is that what you have is a loosely coupled hierarchy where there are elements of freedom and self-will at every level of the hierarchy, but but always uh, constrained by... uh, deterministic factors that are also at every level. So sort of the new model, which I think is coming, is that uh, the Earth is an organism, yes, that's well established, but human history is a part of that organism. It is, and it's as different from the rest of it as the brain is from the liver but that human history is not somehow against the planet or unexpected or unwelcome, that it's actually part of, uh, of the control system and, that, and yet it is controlled. And this is where I think that we need to revision what drugs are. All of human history is the sculpting of uh, human populations by their relationships to plants. I mean, think of uh, the effect that sugar had on the rise of mercantilism uh, and empire building, or opium policy in the Far East, or the spread of rye, the replacing of wheat by rye in the Middle East uh, as you move north, and how that made certain kinds of populations and migrations possible. You could write a book about human history in which you entire you analyze the entire phenomenon as uh, movements toward equilibrium in response to uh, states of disequilibrium introduced by plants, by foods, by spices, by drugs, by psychedelics, by addicting drugs. So that's how, in our own bodies, a given system is regulated through the release of hormones which turn on certain genes and turn off certain other genes and turn on certain secretions and turn off others. So uh, 
I think we, we assume that human history has just been something dreamed up by egomaniacal males, mostly, each one building on the accomplishments of the other. But it may be that it's actually always been regulated as a process by the planetary um, control system by regulating diet, that the diet of every species, and this, particularly this one, determines its energy levels, its intellectual preoccupations, its migratory patterns, its distribution of work and labor, and this sort of thing, which maybe this is over-answering your question, but it's, it's not a dualism. It's not one or the other. Whether you see the, the control and the information from the drug coming from within you or without you is really a matter of perspective, where you choose to describe it from. Intrinsically, it doesn't seem to be possible to know that. We are, we are like cells moving at the will of a larger system. Somebody once said, uh, electrons blindly run. And Alfred North Whitehead said, yes, but inside the body they blindly run according to the body's plan. And I think that's what you might say about people. People blindly run, but without realizing it, they run according to Gaia's plan. Yeah. I personally have experimented with a whole number of psychedelics. And I must say that I've never found that one psychedelic gives you a certain kind of vision and another, really? another. Never. No. Mm. I've always found that it had a lot to do with where I was at, mm. uh, a lot of other things, but the, the key, to me, all psychedelics are really keys. Mm -hmm. They open up that uh, the reducing valve that Huxley talks about, you mm -hmm. know. And w once that's open, Whatever comes in, comes in, but it, for me, it has, has nothing to do hmm. with the uh, uh, Saturday itself. I think we keep hearing the word, you know, like expire, a sense like it felt like I might die. I, possibly one of you would like to address the relative non-toxicity of uh, mushrooms. Well, you see, it's a funny thing. Now we're talking about life and death. And, and when we need reassurance in that realm, we immediately turn to science and talk about the LD50. For those of you who don't know, lethal dose 50. So pharmacologists are always asking of a given drug, what is its LD50? That means how much of it had to be given to 100 rats for 50 of them to die. Now... And uh, LD50s are considered a relative measure of the safety of a drug. The LD50 for psilocybin is huge. I mean, uh, something like uh, 200 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So that means to kill yourself with mushrooms, you would have to eat a dried, four, four and a half dried pounds or something like that. Emphasize because people do. One of the basic fears that one may experience at a threshold dose is the fear of discorporation. <laughs> and that is, if you can grasp the fact that 
that, that you're much worse off drinking a couple of cups of coffee generally, uh, that can alleviate some of that particular fear. You might say, well, it's not going to poison me. All I have to do is keep breathing. Well, a funny thing about this thinking you're going to die, if you tell uh, a straight person this, they say, well, psychedelic drugs, isn't that the bit? You take it and you think you're going to die, and then you don't, and you're so damn glad you didn't that uh, it's like uh, you're ecstatic. <laughs> I've never taken ayahuasca. I'm wondering if, uh, since, from what I understand, DMT is the main effective component, um, when you've taken that, do you find that it's characteristic of a similarity to just pure DMT? Or is it very different than that? No, it's a lot like DMT in the in the center of the flash, but DMT unfolds over a minute or two and lasts three or four minutes. Ayahuasca is more like mushrooms. It comes on at about the hour and twenty minute mark, and it comes in waves, and some of them, but when you really get it, and you're looking at it, you say, yes, this looks just exactly like DMT. You see, I suppose we should explain for people who aren't familiar with it, DMT, if you were to eat it, would be destroyed in your gut by monoamines that would, or monoamine oxidase. So the strategy in the Amazon is to take a plant with DMT in it and a plant with a an, an monoamine oxidase inhibitor in it and combine the two into a beverage that can then be drunk and then the DMT passes through to the brain. One of the great mysteries of ethnopharmacology in the Amazon is how they ever figured this out because we're talking about you know hundreds of thousands of species of plants and in this case it's the leaves of one boiled with the pulpy main body of another placed together in a certain proportion and then the thing works and when you ask them how is this done they say the plants have told us and this seems a more likely explanation than anything anybody has been able to come up with some of you may know this book called uh, the shaman no what was Cordoba or Bruce Lamb's second book called? The Rio Tigre and Beyond, where this guy who had learned how to make ayahuasca when he was kidnapped as a child by a deep uh, forest tribe, when he then in later life becomes a rosewood and curare collector, he meets people in the jungle who are extremely... Uh, uh, say, living in the natural state, very much uncontacted people, but when he takes their ayahuasca, he realizes that it's garbage, that they don't know how to make it, and then he makes it for them and shows them how to make it, and they're just knocked off their feet and hail him as a cultural reformer. So it's not always simply a matter of the uncontacted uh, primitive, so-called primitive people have the skinny, it's a technology. But something I want to say before we leave this is as you think about natural drug complexes around the world, the interesting thing to notice about ayahuasca is that unlike peyote 
or mushrooms or the boga cults of Africa or the morning glory cults of central Mexico or cannabis. Different from all of these is the fact that it's a combinatory preparation. And in practical terms, what that suddenly means is a person is involved. The person who makes it, for the first time we're getting uh, a chemist into the picture, an alchemist, a teacher, if you want, because ayahuasca, unlike mushrooms and all these other things, is only as good as the person who made it. Where mushrooms, you don't have to worry about that in quite the same way. A mushroom is ready to go when it comes out of the ground. The, the ayahuasca is a combinatory drug, and so it brings the human interaction and the lore of it into a much more central position. This is something to bear in mind if you're thinking of going to the Amazon to take ayahuasca. You're going to have a people experience because the only way to it is through people. You could have a mushroom experience in Mexico by simply finding the mushroom, you know. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. At times I've uh, been chided about calling Terence McKenna a poet, but when he was talking about the cycles of ice ages during the past million years and likened them to Gaia needing the bread of evolutionary adaptation, well, I rest my case. <laughs> For me, that is uh, really a beautiful poetic image. Old Mother Earth kneading her dough that perhaps is still rising, but uh, will soon be baked into something delicious. Of course, uh, the getting baked part is uh, up to us cannabis tokers, don't you know? <laughs> and I'll bet that uh, when you heard Terrence say, nobody should be allowed more than 50 years to get their act together, well, uh, that you probably thought the same thing I did. That's uh, true with us humans, too, not just with our science. Uh, however, I must confess that at 50, I still didn't have my act together, and my closest friends would say <laughs> that it's still true yet today. I'm still working on it. You know, uh, sometimes I think that we confuse our science with our technology, which quite obviously has been growing by leaps and bounds for the past hundred years or so. But when you think about the fact that science still hasn't figured out what 75% of the universe is composed of, you have to admit that his comparison of building 16th century churches in Mexico with not being able to do the same thing on the moon in the 20th century, well, it uh, actually puts it into perspective a little bit better, I think. I, uh, I hadn't heard that rap before, and I obviously enjoyed it. Now, before I go today, I want to give you East Coasters a head up about one of the great annual conferences that will be held once again in New York City. And that is the Horizons Perspectives on Psychedelics Conference that will take place in October of this year. And uh, that's 2013 for you time travelers who are joining us in later years. But in October of 2013, from the 11th through the 13th, this conference is going to be a really good place to find some of the others. Their website is at horizonsnyc, that's horizonsnyc.org, and the conference will be held at uh, the Judson Memorial Church in New York City. And among many of the other presenters there are going to be my dear friends Earth and Fire from arrowid.org, which, as you know, is the web's premier site for information about our sacred plants and medicines. 
In fact, if you haven't uh, already read the latest edition of Arrowwood Extracts, I highly recommend it. And I'll put a link to it with the program notes for this podcast, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. There's a, a really important article in the latest edition, and I hope that you'll read it and pass the information along to your friends. What it concerns is a new group of substances called Enbomaze, like uh, 25I and 25C. And in case you've been puzzled by reports of people dying from something suspected to be LSD, well, these are the actual substances that are uh, being passed as LSD right now. And as you know, there's still never been a recorded uh, instance of somebody dying from an overdose of LSD. But uh, something's going on right now, and that article provides some really good advice about how to tell the difference between LSD and the Enbo maze, uh, which information may ultimately save you or your friends a trip to the emergency room. I think that it's uh, really important to try and keep up with what's going on in the area of these new chemicals, and Arrowid.org is the place to find the latest and most accurate information about psychedelic substances that I know of. And uh, also on the program notes, I'll include a link to the uh, new Arrowwood Prospectus, which is particularly worth reading for parents who want to keep up with the challenges that their children will be facing in regards to making decisions about all of the new substances that are now hitting the street. For example, uh, from the Arrowwood Prospectus, I learned that according to the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Addiction, there were 73 new psychoactive drugs released in 2012 and 40 in the first half of 2013. You know, it looks to me like the future of drug education uh, just got a whole lot more complex. And uh, you aren't going to be able to wait for the governments to sort things out. You're going to have to take responsibility for teaching your children about these things yourself. But uh, my guess is that you wouldn't be here in the salon with us if uh, you weren't already doing just that. And uh, by the way, just in case you aren't already aware of the scope of Arrowwood's work, and that, by the way, is E-R-O-W-I-D dot org. Uh, if you aren't aware of the scope of their work, well, last year there were over 15 million people, unique visitors, who visited the Arrowwood site. And they now average over 90,000 unique visitors each and every day. 90,000 people a day, every day, are coming to that site. You know, it's a really a very large tribe that you and I are a part of, and our numbers are growing every day. Now, uh, to close on another personal note, I just want to give a shout-out to Kevin and the rest of the tribe up there in the San Juan Islands, better known as God's Country. While I can't be there in body, I'm always with you guys in spirit. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>